to trust that you are doing well. Uh, if you have your copy of God's Word there in front of you, I invite you to go to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 tonight is where we'll be at as we continue to make our way slowly through the book of Colossians. Uh, we will wrap up Colossians chapter 3 next week, uh, Lord willing. And so we're going to continue to make our way through this book together. Uh, if you, if this is your first time with us, uh, maybe you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the seat in front of you. You can go to page 819 and be there with us. If this is the first time you've been in church, maybe you've never read a Bible before. It's not uncommon. Don't want you to feel out of place. The big numbers are the chapters. The little numbers are the verses. That way you can follow along with us as we make our way through the Bible passage. So, Colossians chapter 3 tonight, beginning in verse number 12. If you guys would stand one more time as we pay honor uh, to the reading of God's word together tonight. Think through the idea of what it means as we talk about steadiness and rootedness in Christ and on Christ. What does it look to continue to grow in Christ? So, Colossians chapter 3 Verse number 12, this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against you, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the reading of God's word. Praise Him for keeping it for us. Let's pray together tonight. Father, we come before you. We want to start off our time praying to you, just thanking you for who you are. Thank you that you are sovereign, that you are unchanging, that while our lives may feel at times like they're out of control or up and down, a roller coaster, we know that with you there's nothing changing. There's no up, there's no down. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, we want to come tonight and ask you that you would be with us in this time as we open your word. And we think of the churches around this city, Father, who will gather tonight and uh, proclaim your word. We think of Freedom Baptist Church and uh, Pastor Leo King there. Father, we ask that you would watch over him, that you would uh, just pour out your richest blessings on their ministry there. Their church would grow, not just numerically, Father, but their church would grow spiritually, that those dear saints there would be equipped to do the work of the ministry. We also think of our friends at Cherry Street Baptist Church. We think of the college ministry there under the direction of Kevin Adams. And we just ask that, again, you would watch over them, that you would allow them to grow, that they might know the fullness of your word. Thank you for that church and their faithfulness to your word through the years. Father, we also are keenly aware tonight that there are people all over the globe who've never heard the name of Jesus. We think of the, uh, the Absan people, 
in Russia and the Nazi people in China. Two people groups, Father, that have never heard your name. And we've sat and read a, stood and read a passage together where your name's been mentioned multiple times. People have never heard your name tonight. So we just pray that if you would see fit to, to raise up missionaries from amongst us, from our city, from our state, from our country, that would go to these unreached, unengaged people groups, that they might know what it means to actually let the word of Christ dwell in them richly. Because right now it's impossible. So Father, I, again, I ask that as we open your word together tonight, that you would watch over the, the words that I will say. You'll govern what we need to walk away with and change as a result of the preaching and the teaching of your word. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. Imagine, if you will, that a group of people get together to improve their community. And they desire to create something like a community garden. This is something that is very common today in the 21st century world to create a, a community garden. They find a plot where the garden is going to land. They're going to go and, and they see this plot and it's particularly overgrown. There's high grass, weeds, trash, debris, all kinds of things that need to be taken out of that particular area of ground. And so what does this group of people do to, to better their community? This is their idea of bettering their community. They go in and they clean that that spot out. They It's clean, it's fresh, it's got everything that they need. And that's where they stop. That's where they stop. No planting of new flowers, no little tomato plants to grow some vegetables for people to enjoy or uh, different types of veggies, whatever people who eat veggies like, uh, they grow there. They don't do it. They come back in a few weeks only to find that the place that they had just spent hours and hours, maybe even a whole day cleaning out, is once again overgrown and they're frustrated with it. They clean it again, but again they clean out this parcel of land, this little spot that is going to be this beacon of light, of hope inside of a community for people to get away from whatever and enjoy a garden, but they never plant anything that people will enjoy. If we were to revisit that plot and find it overgrown, and those same kind of people came once again to clean it, but again, to never plant, we would say, friends, this is the definition of insanity, trying to do the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Sadly, I think that's a, a good picture, a good illustration of what happens in many Christians' lives. They do what the previous paragraph in Colossians talks about. They, they put off, they put to death the sin that exists in their life, but they never get around to the putting on of the characteristics of what it means to be a Christ follower. We could say they never plant what Christ calls to begin to produce that fruit that we always talk about in their own life. And see, this is a great thing about God's word, is that it, it doesn't just give us instructions of what not to do, although many people would tell you the Bible is full of things where it tells you what not to do. The Bible is also 
jam-packed. It's filled with how we live or how we should live. The Bible doesn't just leave us wondering how we should live. And tonight, I think what's, what's incredibly helpful from this particular text, as we turn our attention now to the putting on of what it means to be in Christ, the Apostle Paul does two things in this passage that we're going to look at tonight. He tells them what it looks like, what does growth look like, and then how to actually accomplish it. He tells us what we should do and how we should do it, or what it should look like and how to get there. So let's just dive in by looking first and foremost at what does it actually look like to grow in Christ. We're going to continue to grow in Christ. We turn our attention to verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. We always get nervous. Therefore, as the elect of God, God's chosen people, God's redeemed people, the people who have placed their faith and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. This is who Paul is talking about. He's reminding them of their position in Christ. Why? Because humans are tempted to invert who they are with how they need to live. They're intended, they will attempt to be moral without understanding why they need to be moral. And Christians are really, honestly, at times, no better than the world in getting those right. We don't obey, and then God does something for us. Christ forgives us, and based on our position in Him, we're able to obey rightly. Don't get those inverted. Don't get those inverted where you think, if I obey God, then he will do something for me. That's works-based salvation. It's also, friends, it's prosperity theology. Is what I do merits God doing something for me. It's based on what God has done that we do. That's why the Apostle Paul starts here with, Reminding them of their position in Christ as elect of God. So don't, I know there's a lot of conversation about election. And election is a biblical doctrine. We need to understand it rightly. But in this particular text, the Apostle Paul is not formulating or developing the doctrine of election. He's merely pointing to a past activity as the prompting for future activity. Meaning, he's referring to your position in Christ. It's easy to say, to answer the question, people often ask, how do I know that I am one of the elect? Very easy answer to that question. If you have placed your trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've had that experience in your life, we can affirm that you are who Paul is talking about here. He's referring to Christians. Notice their, who they are, the description of them. They're holy and beloved. God loves them. 
We need to be reminded of this because we're not trying to obey or live out or grow in Christ so that God doesn't throw less thunderbolts at us as a means to escape some sort of punishment. We're holy. We're set aside. We're a royal priesthood uh, that, that Peter writes. We're unique alien citizens living in a world that's not our own. But make no mistake, we are set apart from it and we are loved by God. So as a result of all of that, what is the activity supposed to look like? So we get that right. It's my, salvation is something God does towards me. I have a responsibility in it. God does that. He saves me. And then as a result of being saved, my life should change and I should continue to grow in Christ. So what does that look like? The Apostle Paul says, put on. So you put off, you've taken off the clothes of the old man, that old Adam suit. Now we're going to put on new clothes. Some of you that like to look extra fly, this text is talking about putting on your Christ-centered clothes. More fly than anything that you could buy anywhere on the street. Even out of the back of that guy's trunk in Manhattan. Don't buy that stuff. It's shady. He says, put on. What does it look like to be a Christian who's growing? Well, you're one who puts on. You have, as a definitive marker, tender mercies. It, it carries with it this idea of loving and, and, and being kind to those people who are hurt and broken. Tender mercies is looking out for the least of these. But not in the least of these is only those people who are physically hurt and broken, but even those who are spiritually hurt and broken. Friends, do you know who the broken people in the room are tonight? Do you know who the people who are struggling with different things are in, the, in your own midst tonight, in this group of people? And are you in the regular habit of caring for them? He says, put on tender mercies, kindness. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ's sake has forgiven you. You say, that doesn't sound like the version you read from. I know, it's the King James Version. I'm sorry, my mom quoted that all the time when my brother and I and my sister and I, or me and the two of them or the two of them, whatever, however you want to divide that group, didn't get along. My mom would just quote that. And unfortunately, you know, you're a pastor, so you're supposed to be holy and like at seven, you know, because that's how this works. Like, you're supposed to be like, oh, I get it. Like, is it eye roll? Like, my mom would say that and be like, oh, like we get it. But immediately stop everything at work. But it, it was amazing how three kids who knew Christ could immediately be, like have a visceral reaction to scripture being quoted at them. Praise God, to some degree, that sanctification work has fixed that. But even when I quote that verse, the person I think of is not Christ, it's my mom. But it was seeing Christ in her. We should be kind people. Are you marked by genuine kindness? You're tempted all the time in this way, to be unkind. Even with your, with your attitude, with your actions, even with your facial expressions. 
And you get tempted in all the weirdest places. For instance, Subway is a place where that happened today. I happened to go in to get a sandwich. And I happened to go to the apparently the one Subway location where here's a guy. It's his first day on the job. Apparently, there is an art to making a sub sandwich from Subway. And he was learning that art today. And in the moment, I had to choose. Am I in a hurry? There's no one behind me. There's no one in front of me. I'm the only person in here. And am I going to be a jerk to this guy who's trying to figure out, is this his first day? Friends, unfortunately, I think a lot of times we're unkind in situations that are as simple as that. And yet Christians are to be marked, clothed by kindness. Let's not even talk about how we drove to church here tonight. Or what will happen if our order comes to us tonight when we go to dinner with friends and it's wrong. Never mind the fact that the section is, for whatever reason, they've loaded eight tables into one section. The rest of the restaurant is completely empty. And this one waiter or waitress is by him himself or herself and trying to serve everyone in that one section. And Christians are marked by unkindness. Um, those of you who know, um, we, we travel annually or biannually once every two years to Louisville, Kentucky to go to a conference called Together for the Gospel. And every year someone has to write a blog post in March or April that that conference is hosted reminding all the people who attend that conference. Like, don't be stingy tippers. Because now the conference has been meeting there since 2006, every other year. And the hardest week of the year to get people to work in downtown Louisville is not the week of the Kentucky Derby. Or when Louisville's in town. It's the deal with the stingy pastors at Together for the Gospel. What a shame. Christians should be marked by kindness. Humility. We should be marked by humility. God has saved us and rescued us. We have nothing to boast in. I love the Edwards quote. The only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. God doesn't choose us based on who we are and how much he needs us. And yet we walk around more often than not as proud people. Do you know who I am? I do not, nor do I care. Christians should be marked by people who don't have a sense of entitlement, but rather humbly want to serve the people around them and care for them. Meekness, this idea of being gentle and long-suffering. We could probably stop here. We're not going to. These attributes alone give me plenty to work on. There's plenty here to keep me busy. But he doesn't stop. He continues in this list of virtues, saying, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. This, this list is bearing with one another. This idea of putting up with each other and not putting up with each other in the sense of we're tolerating you for tolerance sake, but genuinely enjoying each other's company. Christian world is unlike any other because it brings from such a diversity that friends, unfortunately, or fortunately probably for our sake, 
not every person who attends and is a covenant member of our church is going to be our best friend. But beloved, in Christ, that should be okay. We should be okay with that because there's nowhere on earth where you can find the diversity of backgrounds, hopefully the diversity of people groups, races, a diversity of unmatched proportion to anywhere else in the world. Because Christ is what unites us together. And because of that, we're bearing with one another. We're forgiving one another. We're long-suffering. So that means when a Christian says or does something that we don't like, we try to be long-suffering and patient. It means that with dealing with college students to be patient, pastor, when they don't live up to what you want them to be, recognizing that you didn't get where you are overnight. And when they sin against you, to quickly forgive them because Christ quickly forgave you. This is not just a sermon to you. It's a sermon to us. I thought this was humorous that R. Kent Hughes wrote this. So this is an apt description of Christians who don't live by verse 13. He wrote this little poem and what Baptist sermon would be incomplete without a poem. A lot of mine. This is, I thought, was helpful. To live above with the saints we love. Oh, that will be glory but to live with saints or to live below with the saints we know well that's a different story some of us are incredibly unkind to even our own members even our own small group members should that not be a defining marker of who we are that you would feel that a person would feel like they weren't cherished, valued, and loved when they walked into this place. Again, not based on who they are, but based on who Christ is and what he's done for them. This is what gets the church in Corinth in trouble. This is what James writes about, this idea of preferring others above other Christians, this idea of certain people get certain treatment. It's even what Jesus rebukes the disciples when they're arguing about who's going to be the greater in the kingdom. He says, even the Gentiles, they lord their rulership over each other, but it won't be so among you for the first will be last and the last will be first. I mean, my goodness, our world is replete with people always trying to be the first and the greatest and the best. We just indicted 33 people who paid anywhere from $60,000 to $6.5 million to make sure that their kids got into rich private schools. We, we see this all the time. As people will use and abuse their wealth, their authority, and their status to get ahead. Christians should not be those people. We should be people who are marked by bearing and caring with one another. Especially in here. So the next time we're tempted... Right As our fingers start to itch to type that subtweet, 
in that argument on Facebook and put before the watching world how we're going to interact with each other, friends, we should take pause and make sure that we're bearing and caring well for the people around us. And for that, funny, and this is convicting, because apparently 10 years into education, I still have not been able to prove the thesis that sarcasm is in fact a spiritual gift. It seems to be lacking in the New Testament, hoping that I can find it in the Old Testament. Unfortunately, in my case, it means guarding my mouth because my quick wit often will get a laugh from a crowd at the expense of a brother or sister who's cut down in front of everyone else. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another, especially those people who have a complaint against you. Man, I don't like those people. I wish they'd go away. God calls us to love and to care and to be concerned with them. How is that going to happen? Well, it says, but above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. You've got to love people. Night, day in the morning. You've got to love people. I've always been confused by this statement. And I hear it quite often. I've even heard it in our college ministry. Someone will tongue-in-cheek say, you need to love them. And a Christian will respond, I'll love them, but I don't have to like them. Beloved, I don't know how that works. It's really hard to love someone you don't like. And I get it. Maybe you're not going to be best friends. You're going to go on vacation together and book cruises together and go on family vacation. I personally just think that's weird. To go on vacation with all of your random friends that you're not really that super close to. It's a great way to end up in sin when they need to stop for the eighth time. It's fitting that Faith Dino is here with us tonight, who's caused us to stop on more road trips than any probably any other student that we've ever had. Bearing with one another means the grumblers who are plotting that particular passenger's death in the back of the van not exercising what it means to be a Christ follower. And we could even say, while we're laughing, they've sinned. Beloved, I think we need to be much more careful with how we live our lives. And the things that we do and and the things that we say and the things that we tweet and the things that we write online, we've got to guard what we do and say because the watching world is saying, that's a Christian. We want to be marked as people of Christ. We actually have to live like him. That's, I know that's not earth shattering in the realm of theology. But in the realm of practical theology, living out, putting feet to your theology, it is incredibly radical to live and to be a Christian that's marked by these things. Love is not the ultimate thing, but it is the thing that ties it all together. And how is it going to be tied together? Well, it's because the peace of God is ruling in your heart. That transformed heart, that peace that comes only from God is ruling your heart. You want to live the right way, your heart has to be ruled the right way. It's impossible for you to live the right way and inwardly. I think this is where, why a lot of Christians get into trouble. 
because they haven't started with their heart. They're trying to clean up their outward actions. They're trying to be kind, but their heart's not kind. They're trying to be long-suffering, but their heart's not long-suffering. They're trying to love, but their heart's not loving. How many times are we going to have to go back to the Gospels and watch as Jesus absolutely skewers with his words the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the religious leaders of the day, telling them over and over and over again, you're a whitewashed tomb. You look great on the outside, but you look terrible on the inside. That sanctification starts at the heart and then works its way out. This idea of being transformed into Christ starts at the heart level and then works its way out. Because we're called to be one body. I told our small group leaders and adult leaders Sunday night at church, they're like, I would love to be Duke Evers from Rocky, the great trainer that in the middle of Rocky IV, the bell has been rung, the fighters are supposed to go back in the corners, and a melee ensues. And what does Duke do? He puts one foot on the middle rope and flings himself into the ring to tackle one of the Russian trainers. And there is an all-out brawl going on. Friends, I think the world wants to beat us up, and Christians are people who forget that they're one body. And they watch. Sometimes they laugh. Well, that's what you get for living so boldly for Jesus. What? What does that even mean? How can you even say that? We're one body. Come attack one of us. We're going to respond, not in kind, but we're going to protect Christ and his body. Some of you can't protect the body because you're currently insulting it insulting each other, insulting the church. You say, David, who are you talking about? I have no idea. It's not even in my notes. This is a protective idea. And then he, then he says the worst thing of all, and be thankful. You gotta do, I got to be on top. I don't have enough to work on here, but let's just tack on thankfulness. Because it's not... It's not difficult enough as a college student or even as a young married couple or as whoever you are to look around the room and go, man, I wish I had that. But be thankful. To have a heart of thankfulness. Where are you with these things tonight? Is your heart marked by them? Are you genuinely marked by living this way? And if so, if you're not marked by that, Enjoy that convicting word. Friends, when you're listening to sermons, are you praying and asking that God would show you the areas where you need to change? See, this is the worst part about being a pastor. Is you get double whammy. You get conviction in the study, and then you're up here trying to preach to everybody else, but the Holy Spirit's still working on you as you're preaching. You gotta work on that. Gotta work on that. Okay, can we, I gotta get through this sermon. We don't have time to address all of my problems. That's a, that's a prideful attitude. So as you're listening, are you asking, God, 
what are the areas where I need to change? So the big question, right? You go, okay, there's a lot of things to work on. Got a lot in this what category. That's great. How do we do that? That, That's the second thing. How do we live this out? And it's, I'm just going to warn you, it's not super revolutionary. It's actually quite simple. It says, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. One verse that's going to really kind of help us to think about how we can get there. We have to first let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. This is the message of who Christ is. And friends, if you're thinking this is just the red letters of Jesus, that's a wrong application. There's a rising group of people that will tell you, well, we really are about the Bible. We really love the message of Jesus. We really love the red letters. Friends, there aren't just certain portions of the Bible that Jesus wants you to know. Remember, he's a whole Bible guy. Jesus, I don't know he would put it quite like this, but Matt Chandler would. Aren't we all supposed to be Bible guys, dum-dums? Meaning, shouldn't the, the word of God dwell in us? It should permeate us. All of the Bible speaks about who Jesus is. Old Testament, Jesus concealed. New Testament, Jesus revealed. All of it dwells in us richly. We, can, we need to let it permeate. One theologian said this, that we are to be people who understand the wealth of the scriptures as this. The church is to be stocked with good teaching as a palace is filled with treasures. If you're a visitor tonight and you go to a church that doesn't value the preaching and teaching of the Bible, can I just tell you as a friend, you need to leave there. They don't sit sit under the authority of the scriptures. Can I just tell you unashamedly, you don't have to come here, but you can't stay there. That old adage, you don't got to go home, but you can't stay here. You can't go back to that church and continue to live under the guise of, well, it's okay because all my homeboys or all my friends go here. That can't be enough. What's being taught in a church must be the word of Christ. But also in your day-to-day life, it needs to rest there. It should permeate. It should be a part of who we are. And then it gets even more specific. You need to be in a church that's teaching and admonishing one another. Making sure we're not just driving off the cliff into false doctrine, false theology, and error. One that guards it. And guess what? That's not just done in the preaching and teaching moment, which is where the, uh, the Apostle Paul's headed here. He's saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Worship wars back in the first century. Psalms, think of the book of Psalms as his own hymn book. But don't limit it just to the book of Psalms. New Testament of the first century would take material from the Old Testament and create worship songs to communicate the truth about who God was and sing it together. And then they would sing hymns together. Songs that exalted the name and the work of Christ. And then they sang spiritual songs. 
songs from the best evidence we can tell from commentators. These are just original compositions from the overflow of the heart of the congregation as they sing about who God is. Make no mistake. It's robustly theological and robustly doctrinal and it's on point. careful with what we sing we need to watch what we sing and how we sing it we're singing it with grace in your hearts to to the lord some of you and this is how bad this is some of you look frustrated from your back that you're being asked to even sing to god so just for the record, I try to sit where I can't see your faces while we're singing. And I try and sit up here so I'm not tempted to think about how everybody's responding after the preaching moment. Because my heart's fickle and will be tempted to pride. So I'm trying to guard myself. So I stand in the back. But from some of your backs, I don't know if you're even aware of this, but from some of your backs you look frustrated while you're singing and that's a lot of frustration if your back is communicating frustration that's a ton of frustration or a ton of just disinterest do you recognize when we are singing together it's not a concert where we're watching the people up here sing like oh man kind of a little pitchy kind of off beat i'm convinced that Christians have watched too much of the voice because they bring it into worship and they're just like. And at some point it will get good enough where they're like, and it's like spin around and like all of a sudden they're full of the spirit. Like, well, that was good. Oh, I don't like hymns. I'm not a, I'm not a psalm guy. Don't try and don't try and. Church that up and jazz that psalm up. I'm not about that. Spiritual song. Old people are the same way. They don't really know what that newfangled music is. What are they doing with all those instruments up there? Back in my day, we just had a piano and an organ and everybody was happy. There's multiple types of songs, but the key is what are they communicating And what are they actually saying about who God is, about who Christ is, and about who we are in light of who they are? Friends, I'm just going to be honest with you. This is a running conversation between Jimmy, uh, Jacob, and myself of evaluating constantly what our worship is going to be about. And and we're getting ready. I've just been, this, this passage has just torn me up. We're getting ready to just go back through our music again and say, Need to pull this, need to pull that, need to pull this, need to pull that, need to insert this, need to insert that, need to fix this, need to correct that. We're not perfect. And just for the record, while we're here and and, and while I've gone long again, I'm just going to say this. The only time that anything infallible happens in this pulpit is right at the beginning when I read the word of God. So we're humans and we're going to make mistakes. And sometimes we're going to pick and sing songs that maybe miss the mark. Or maybe their authors miss the mark theologically. So we've got to wade through all of that. Things that I sit in my office and listen to 
to sermons by guys that I don't agree with. So I make sure I know why we're pulling that song. Or we're sitting around a table together and reading through a song and saying, we can't, that's not right. So you gotta, you got to be long-suffering, right? So this is great. I say all this, and then the next week we come in here, and we pick a song that's off, and people are like, you said psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, but they're supposed to be doctrinally, theologically correct. And my response is going to be bearing with one another, loving one another, even as Christ forgave you. Because every time you don't get it right, Christ isn't like, well, look here. Christians need to be careful how quickly and prone they are to fly off the handle about something they don't agree with and take their time and breathe and make sure everything is done. How? Well, verse 17 says, whatever you do in the word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You could parallel this with 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In fact, next week, the Apostle Paul is going to say, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So we're trying to do our best. Our staff pastors in our church, we're trying to do our best, man. We're, I'm in the study. I'm like knee deep in commentaries. I'm trying to do my best. Jimmy and the band are trying to do their best. Jacob's along there helping lead, and we're trying to do our best. And our small group leaders are trying to do their best. We're trying to do it for the Lord and not for men. And here's what the challenge is. That the rest of the church said, me too. I'm going to come in and I'm going to worship my guts out. But not for anybody around me. For God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to participate. I'm not going to be a bystander. I'm going to be an active participant. I'm going to be at everything. I'm going to do everything. Not because that's what's expected of me from some leader or small group person or whatever. But because I'm living... For God, I don't, want to, I don't want to miss an opportunity to minister to someone. Some of you may think that the amazing race is the dumbest thing we've ever done. Some of you may think it's the greatest thing we've ever done. I personally land in the middle because I've just heard too many stories about cars almost flipping to think that we, it's the smartest thing that we've ever done. But I do know this. One thing that's surprising to me year in and year out, and I don't know why it's surprising to me, it's been a... Uh, Sixth year, seventh year we've done it. Every year I'll watch as teams who are like, I'm with them. That person, you put me with them, seriously? I don't want to be with them. I want to be with my friends or I want to be with my best friend or I want to be with whomever. I watch as they come back in after spending one night driving around town, trying to avoid getting pulled over and dying. come in there laughing and enjoying each other. I, I think sometimes we miss the opportunities that God is using to ordain us and, and prepare us to find somebody that we might actually enjoy hanging out with besides our other two friends. You can only do that when you're participating and you're mingling and getting to know new people. I'm going to make one of the surprises here. I'm rather introverted really honestly would much rather be in my office studying and producing papers 
than to have to mingle and do small talk. Like that just really makes me nervous. I'm always say stupid stuff. That's how, why I'm nervous. It's not because I don't think I can do small talk. It's because I, I end up saying something stupid and embarrassing myself. So it's just another episode of how prideful I am. And I know that God's using those moments for me and for the people that I'm talking to. And I think, honestly, that's one of the things that will kill our college ministry is if we don't realize that by letting the word dwell in us richly and by being in community together, we have the opportunity to encourage each other to do all of the things that are in the previous five or four verses from 12 to 16. Or, yeah, 12 to 15, however many verses are there. In that section, with all of those different things, when Christ's word is dwelling in us richly and we're serving God for him and not for us, and we recognize that God has saved us and God has placed us here, then we have the opportunity to minister to each other and encourage each other and to lift each other up. So, yeah, do I want you to sign up for a conference? Yes. Is it because I think you need to hear my preaching again? No. It's because of the same reason why I go to the conferences that I do. I don't go for the preaching. I certainly don't go for the food. Go for the moments in between the sessions as a brother tells me what he took away from that sermon that I missed completely. And now I'm able to grow even more. And I love the activities that we do where we send you all away to go run around the city and act like fools. Because while you're out and about, the adult leaders are mingling out there, talking and growing and encouraging each other. That's why you got to remember Colossians isn't just a book about how to be a better Christian. It's also a book on how to be a better church member because this is written to a church. And we are a church. Sleep. Somebody must have chloroformed you and got you here. Which, if they did, I'm sorry that that's what they did. But hey, you're here, so to God be the glory. So I'm going to need to edit that out. Anyway, friends, I do want to encourage you, and I hope this sermon has been an, as much of an encouragement to you as it has been to me, because I think we all have room to grow in our spiritual lives. God is continually growing us up until he takes us home or he comes to get us. But it's just exciting to know that for the rest of our lives, we're going to be working on growing in Christ. So don't wait until after college or after you graduate or after you get to whatever landmark you need to to suddenly take Jesus seriously. Let's be people who start today and let the word dwell in us richly so that we can be the type of person who's described in verses 12 and 13. Let's pray.